I'm Amy Mullins and you're listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is broadcast every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm on 3RRR FM. Today's show, we spoke with Ben Altham on federal politics, Amber Jamison on President Trump and his executive orders. Uh, We spoke with Hugh McKay, who's a social researcher and author on his Gandhi oration, The State of the Nation Starts in Your Street, which is about connecting with your neighbour, showing compassion to everyone you meet, and really rediscovering what it means to be human and to live in a community. Then we spoke with Barry Dickens, author and playwright. He's written a new book called Last Words, and it's about Ronald Ryan, who was the last man to be hanged in Australia. That anniversary was 50 years ago last week. I hope you enjoy the podcast and look forward to seeing you next time. You're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR. I'm Amy with Ben Eltham in the studio right now, who's come to talk about federal politics. Morning, Ben. Morning, Amy. Thanks for joining us again. It's really great to have you in. It's good to be here. Now, um... I just need to get straight into this because we have too much to cover in such a short period of time. I don't even think a day would cut it. (laughs) Um, It's only been a week, Ben, but since then we've had two National Press Club addresses, one from each leader, Malcolm Turnbull and Bill Shorten. Uh, We've also seen someone have a very awkward, horrible phone call and the fallout from the phone call, um, which, you know, we heard pretty much well, non-stop until maybe a day ago. It's been going on for quite a while and that was um, then satirised on Saturday Night Live. And um, then we had, uh, well, we've had a pretty dismal news poll come out yesterday uh, and then Cory Bernardi's decided to leave the Liberal Party. So there's a lot to cover. Anything there stick out to you, Ben, as being particularly interesting? Well, yes, a week is a long time in politics, Amy. Um, Obviously, the big news today is that Cory Bernardi, the maverick liberal or former liberal now, uh, senator from South Australia, has announced that he is leaving the Liberal Party to set up his own new party, the Australian Conservatives. So that is uh, a reasonably um, important thing. uh, And it's going to be big news in federal politics for at least the next few days. And he's about to get up in the Senate right now, pretty much, whenever Parliament actually... Yeah, 12.30 apparently he's going to give a speech explaining why he's doing it and uh, he's going to, yeah, launch his new uh, movement on the right of Australian politics. So a very, very interesting move there from Bernardi, who's, of course, uh, a very sort of colourful character and someone known for his strident views, particularly on social issues. Um, He's been agitating in the right wing of the Liberal Party for really for many, many years now, Um, always threatening to leave but never quite pulling the trigger. So now he's done it and it'll be very interesting to see whether this new party, the Australian Conservatives, will amount to anything, whether it'll be a genuine new movement in Australian politics, whether it's able to carve off a significant amount of vote from the Liberal right, or whether it goes the way of many minor parties and simply dwindles into insignificance. Well, it is interesting because you wonder how much of the portion of a Liberal vote is the progressive or wet Liberal and then the other, which is the very conservative Bernardi, uh, George Christensen style of liberal. How much of that do you think he actually captures? Yes, that's an open question and I guess we're about to find out. But my opinion is, even if it's half and half, let's say it's half and half, let's say 
of the 40% that the Liberals roughly poll in primary votes, that half of that is the Conservative amount. If Bernardi is able to cleave off a significant amount of, the, of that vote, then he will be able to create uh, a third force or a fourth force in politics. Uh, but he'll need to get that many voters. You know, he'll need to be polling in the tens, in the teens, for him to win any senators, for, uh, you know, for them to be able to, sign- to exert a significant electoral influence, if you like. But if they're only polling in the single figures and if they're unable to get traction in the electorate, then um, I think we'll we'll soon um, we'll, we'll soon know that. But I, I think unless they can get a significant amount of of the liberal base coming over to this conservative party, then they're not going to amount to anything. Mm, and we've seen that it's been quite a long road for the Greens in terms of building their influence and number of seats held in lower houses and upper houses. Obviously, the upper house is a bit easier, and certainly in particular uh, states like Tasmania, um, but. Really, have we, have we seen this coming? Because Bernardi, you know, he, he reserved websites for his apparent political party two years ago. You know, but I guess people just thought he'd never actually pull the trigger and decide to leave. Yeah, I mean, questions have got to be asked about the Liberal hierarchy, I think. Like, why are they pre-selecting a guy who's openly talked about leaving their party for And many put him years? at number one on the ticket. Uh, number two, I think he was, yeah, but still very I high. Think, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure what it was, but he was aiming yeah. for number one. Well, that, I mean, that's a really good point, Amy, because, um, because he's so high on the Senate ticket... He's now a senator for the next five and a half years. Wow. So uh, even you know, even if the party itself amounts to nothing, he'll still be the uh, parliamentary representative of the Australian Conservatives for the next five years. So he's got a significant period there to, to build his base. Mm-hmm. Um, you're right to point to the Greens. I mean, it took them a generation to move from a fringe party to where they are now, which is certainly not the mainstream. I mean, they're only still polling around about 10, 11%, you know, after being established for 30-plus years um, and having, you know, significant um, growth in various areas and winning lower house seats and things like that. So it's a very hard road to hoe if you're going to be a minor party in Australia. The compulsory voting system makes it very hard for minor parties. And, of course... Winning lower house seats is traditionally very difficult for minor parties uh, because you need a majority of the people in that electorate. And so it's hard for me to think of where the Australian Conservatives could possibly win a lower house seat in Australia. I can't I can't really see that happening. Yeah. Well, it's also interesting that now that this is... Hit- Bernardi's obviously senator, so that's a good thing in a way because that doesn't really it impacts, but it isn't a huge impact because, as we know, in the House of Reps, um, the Liberals have a one-seat majority. Um, you know, there are plenty of Conservatives uh, around in the backbenches predominantly. Um, do you think it's likely or or possible that some at some point during this year we'll either see uh, a really conservative Liberal threaten to leave? over a certain policy that they may disagree with or even actually leave and move to the Bernardi faction or party? 
Well, that's an interesting point, Amy. I mean, it's certainly, I think it's significant that Bernardi has not been able to bring anyone else with him. So he's gone out there as a party of one. You know, he's left on his own. He hasn't brought George Christensen or Andrew Hastie or any of the other prominent far-right members of the Liberal Party over to his new party. So I think that's important, actually. It shows that for now, really, the Liberal Party remains reasonably unified. But you're right, it does give other Liberal Party backbenchers who already have plenty of leverage because of the numbers on the House of the Parliament um, to they have the ability now to threaten Malcolm Turnbull with leaving if he doesn't do what they want. Um, and with the numbers as they are, that's that's a credible threat. Yeah, and I mean, we did see in the last few days some Liberals internally float the idea of a free vote for same-sex marriage. It's probably just a very brief blip, but this is maybe one example where uh, certainly Conservatives could wave their vote around and say, well, actually, you know, you need to toe my line. Yes, I mean, what this is all about really is about factional fighting within the Liberal Party. So we're used to thinking of the Labor Party as this kind of confederate organisation of many different factions and power bases jockeying for influence within the broader Australian Labor Party. But there are no factions in the Liberal Party, Ben, well, that's don't the you myth. know? That's the myth, isn't it? And I think that what's been really interesting about the last three or four years has been the emergence of very, very serious factional politics within the Liberal Party, particularly federally, but also at a state level. And you've seen really open warfare between the moderate wing of the Liberal Party and the more conservative wing of the Liberal Party. And uh, Bernardi is certainly one aspect of that, but it, it really ramifies through... All all of the state branches and you've seen, you know, very, very significant internal battles, particularly in New South Wales between the moderates and the, and the conservatives. And, and this is part of what that what is happening there. So um, you've got very, very divisive social issues where for the conservatives, these are sort of take it or leave it issues. Like there's no way that the conservatives will ever vote for same sex marriage. There's no way that they're ever going to vote to enable something like the safe schools sort of thing, funding for that or, or, or things like that. So, that, And there's a bunch of other issues where that they'll die in a ditch over it. The moderates, on the other hand, have been very clever and assiduous in building up their position within the, the factions of the Liberal Party. So they've been able to get really good pre-selections and they've been able to take over certain branches of the party. And so people like Arthur Sinodinos now controls the New South Wales Liberal Party. And, and so this is the sort of stuff that's happening behind the scenes, if you like. It doesn't really matter matter on a policy level, but it does matter in terms of who hates who. And of course, hatred's a very strong force in politics. Mm. And interestingly, uh, someone we think of as a moderate is Malcolm Turnbull. Um, it's questionable now whether he truly is in terms of his policy priorities. But one of the developments we saw was that uh, his new climate advisor uh, hails from the Minerals Council. Well, some would say that's just uh, making a, an honest uh, perspective of it all because, you know, the Liberal Party policy on climate has been laughably sort of anti-climate for, for many years now. But, yeah, this just sort of shows where Turnbull's headed on many of these issues. Um, he's brought in a, a fellow from the Minerals Council to advise on climate. Um, and presumably this is behind some of the stuff that we've talked about in previous weeks, like the push by the Liberals to try and build a new coal plant. I mean, yes, this ultra is, supercritical. Yeah, the ultra supercritical idea. Yeah. 
I mean, again, this has got nothing to do with energy prices or politics of, of um, or certainly not the science of climate. This is all about the culture wars, really. This is about showing to the liberal base that they still like burning coal, you know. And, and what an indictment on Australian politics that we've got to the stage where we're talking about building a coal-fired electricity plant really as a gesture, as a kind of uh, a gesture of politics. I think that's pretty sad, actually. It's very sad. Well, this whole idea of cleaner energy is just horrible to, to even say that. I think well, it's, it's just bizarre, isn't it? I mean, fancy talking about clean coal. I mean, everybody knows that that's a lie. It's an oxymoron. It's a joke, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you want clean energy, we know what to, what to do. We know where the clean energy comes from. It comes from the sun and the wind. So, and, the, and the waves. Yeah, absolutely. Which we've really been avoiding in terms of implementing that kind of technology. Um, yeah, there's certainly some very interesting stuff going on in WA with the Carnegie Wave yeah, Company. Who so. have actually moved to Cornwall uh, to, well, they haven't, their headquarters haven't moved, but that's where they're starting to set up businesses, uh, Scotland and England, because that's where they're getting the greatest amount of support and funding from governments. Yeah, well, that wouldn't surprise us, considering, you know, the environment for renewable energy in Australia since the election of the coalition, it's been pretty bad. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if other renewable companies get up and leave. Mm. But some an, an example of where we need to support innovation and, uh, and efforts for clean energy, obviously a little bit sad. Well, the, the, I mean, the amazing thing about the renewable energy debate is that for all intents and purposes, it's over, right? Okay, we know what is the cheapest form of electricity in the future. It's renewable energy. Um, and it doesn't matter what the government says. It doesn't matter how many jokes they make about clean coal or how many gestures they make to the right wing of the party base. The fact is, if you want cheaper electricity bills for consumers, you have to invest in renewables. And, and that, that's just a fact of economics. Forget about the climate. Well, what do you think about this whole discussion about energy security? Because that's just going to keep coming up and coming up. Josh Frydenberg last night on Q&A kept ringing that up as their primary concern, not climate change, but energy security. Yeah, well, that's another lie, basically. That's that's a, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, that's, that's saying that renewable energy is not secure. Well, that's wrong. Uh, that's simply wrong. Um, there's very simple ways to make renewable energy uh, very, very steady and to make sure that the grid has enough electricity to, to basically be on all the time. Um, as we saw with the South Australian wind example, when they had their storm there, that was blamed on wind power. Of course, uh, multiple inquiries since then have established that it had nothing to do with uh, wind power itself. It was simply a factor of um, the the power poles being blown down by the storm, essentially. Yeah. Well, it is a bit shocking and it's sad to see this keep coming up every week. I hope that I don't have to talk about ultra supercritical oh, well, we'll, No, I mean, plants. energy will continue to be a big issue, I think. Going I think clean coal, though, if we have to continue on this merry-go-round of t discussing a technology which actually is very ineffective and highly costly, uh, is, it, is that just a delaying tactic to not deal and come up with a, a legitimate policy? Yeah, it's just a talking point, in my opinion. There's no way that any commercial operation is going to build a coal plant in Australia. The numbers just don't stack up. You know, mm -hmm. you just can't make money out of it. So I can't see how that will ever happen. It doesn't matter how much free money the government throws at the problem unless it's actually going to build one itself. 
I just don't think it will happen. Yeah, a state-owned coal-fired power <laughs> plant. What a classic. Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. Uh, and then also something came up, a couple of things in Turnbull land. We had, uh, he revealed on ABC 7.30 that he contributed quite a lot of money to the last federal election campaign, $1.75 million of his own and Lucy's money. Yeah, that one just slipped by in, in the imbroglio over the phone call with Donald Trump. I mean, of course, the phone call with Trump about the stalled immigration deal between Australia and the United States, that dominated much of the political coverage last week. Um, and in between, yeah, Turnbull just sort of slipped in this admission that, yes, he'd spent $1.75 million on the Liberal campaign uh, during July. And just scraped through. Yeah, well, I mean, as many people have pointed out, fancy spending that much money and having that little influence on Liberal Party policy. (laughs) So, you know, it gives the lie to the argument that big donors can control what our politicians do because the biggest donor of all is the Prime Minister and he struggles to get his own policies implemented. That's very, very true. Um, And you mentioned there the Trump phone call. Well, we saw that uh, there were two differing stories that arose out of that. And then obviously the leaks are coming out of the White House because no one in Australia would like to be that embarrassed by the kind of discussion that was apparently had, um, that this discussion was apparently the worst phone call that Trump had had in that whole day. And I think he'd spoken to Angela Merkel and (laughs) quite a few others. Um, And Putin, I think, he also had spoken with. What do you make of this... um, this phone call and also the broader implications for the US-Australia alliance because this is something that is really just taken as a given um, that Australia and America are really close allies. Um, a survey came out in America that showed that Republicans name Australia as their number one strongest ally, presumably from ANZUS, our treaty, which basically means that we'll go in to support America uh, when there are wars that are waged and certainly we've done that and the last one being the Iraq war and we're over in Syria to some extent, what do you what do you make of this and its and the broader implications on foreign policy and our relationship? Oh, I think it is very significant, Amy. I mean, I think it it shows that uh, the the sort of the guarantee of good relationship with the United States that we've always, or certainly since 1941, we've always thought that of the United States as our great and powerful friend, uh, in the phrase of Robert Menzies, um, we're going to have to rethink that relationship. And that poses all sorts of strategic questions for Australia, particularly in a time of, of growing rivalry in the Pacific between the United States and China, you know, very, very big, scary things going on in the South China Sea with China building all sorts of military bases there and the Americans saying that they don't want the Chinese to build those bases and flying bombers over those bases. So we kind of are into a little bit of a new Cold War in the Pacific and Australia is very firmly aligned with the United States on those security issues. No doubt about that. I mean, we've got US Marines in Darwin We've got bombers flying out of Tyndall, American planes flying out of Australian air bases. Uh, We have, of course, fought alongside the Americans in every war since the First World War. So, you know, lots and lots of cultural affinities there. Uh, But I think the question does need to be asked, what are the cold, hard strategic interests for Australia of being in the US alliance? I mean, is it really in Australia's interests uh, to get into bed with Donald Trump with a far-right administration 
that was not democratically, you know, did not enjoy the popular vote um, and which is rattling sabres, frankly. So, yeah, very big questions there. Of course, if you look even on the nitty-gritty of the refugee deal, I think what was funny about that that conversation is that Trump is right. It is a bad deal for the Americans. They're doing well, us a favour. They really are. Is it actually a deal? Like, usually deals have... They're two-way. Like, surely no, they're meant to get I mean, something from it. it's pretty obvious what happened here. Malcolm Turnbull asked Barack Obama for a favour. He said, we really need to get these refugees off Manus and Nauru. Will you take some? And Obama said yes. And so Trump has Bless been him. lumped with this deal... Um, coming into the new administration and he's looked at it and he said, well, why should America take Australia's refugees? And this is actually a really good point, you know, and I, it, it worries me that more people in Australia haven't asked the same question, which is that why are we asking the United States to take these refugees? They came to Australia, they asked Australia for protection. Uh, we didn't give it to them. We sent them to a concentration camp in the Pacific. So, you know, there's all sorts of uncomfortable questions that this poses for Australia's immigration policy, as well as what it says about the US-Australian alliance. Very, very true. Um one last thing that uh, I wanted to mention. There's something growing around Queensland. I think it's in, where am I? Central Queensland. And uh, it's because of this defence deal that's been done between Singapore and Australia. There's potentially... um, Something that's been floated, which the local member, Michelle Landry, had no idea about apparently when she was running in the last election, that uh, Defence may want to compulsorily acquire farming land from uh, predominantly farmers in central Queensland. And uh, Barnaby has been up there trying to do damage control and negotiate with farmers. Um It's a bit concerning that I think this is a broader signal of our treatment of rural Australians and farmers on a range of issues. Why um, are we seeing such a disconnect? Is it that they think farmers and rural Australians have no power? Well, yeah, this is a bit of a sleeper issue, I think, Amy. So, yeah, yeah, what's happened is that the Australian government has done a deal with the Singaporean government to sell them a bunch of land so that their army can train in Australia. Singapore, obviously, a pretty small island, not a lot of space for their army to operate in. So they want some land. Um, It's around Rockhampton in central Queensland, as you mentioned. They want some land, basically, to practice on, you know, to do operations, exercises. um. And as we know, they have a base there. Yeah. Uh, in and around that area. But this will dramatically expand that base. And yeah, so you're right. They are going to compulsorily acquire, I think, 65 properties around um, that part of the world. A very quality quality land in terms of... Yeah, grazing land, some fourth, fifth generation farms that they're talking about buying up. And um, as usually happens of this kind of thing, the locals weren't consulted. Um, I mean, you know, it's not surprising the locals weren't consulted because if you ask them (laughs) if they wanted this to happen, I'm pretty sure they'd say no. And was it not the most marginal seat in the last election? Yeah, Capricornia is the most marginal seat, I think, in the federal parliament. Could have tipped it the other way and they may not have had a one-seat majority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, explosive politics of that nature in the regions. We've seen with the fracking debate and with the lock the gate movement just how uh, febrile that kind of politics can get. You know, there's a there's a real sense, in, I think, out in the those rural communities that 
the the government doesn't listen to them, that city dwellers don't care about their welfare, that, that we don't really get it here in the inner city. Um, and I think that's fair enough, actually. I mean, I, yeah. I don't think we are very connected to the problems and the issues that, that rural and regional Australia faces in the major cities. So, yeah, I think that could be a real sleeper issue. That could actually be very important down the track. Definitely. And we'll be watching that one and keeping an eye on it because I think it is important for us to have an eye on rural and regional Australia and make sure that we're supporting and discussing yeah. those issues. Well, while we're talking about sleeper issues, yeah. another one I think that's going to get really big is the Carmichael Mine. So that's also in central Queensland. This is the giant coal mine that uh, Gina Reinhart wants to build in, um, as well as uh, Gautam Adani, an Indian mining magnate. Now, this is uh, the biggest coal mine in Australia if it's actually built out and it's going to have a massive climate impact. And uh, the environmental movement is gearing up for the largest blockade, the largest protest, probably since the Franklin Dam in the 1980s. So, you know, at this stage, we don't know if the mine's actually going to be built. They don't have the money to build it yet, but they've got all the approvals. And so I think we are headed for a showdown. And I think that it's a really symbolic issue because it really symbolises the showdown between, well, between big energy and in the environment. So that could be a really big issue in coming years as well. Definitely. Thanks for bringing that up, Ben. Uh, we'll keep an eye on that one too. And thank you for coming in and discussing just, there's just so much <laughs> to talk about. Yeah, and, and I and believe and there'll be even more. Today, so the hits keep coming. Yeah, it's Christmas time for us. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we'll be checking the Twitter, I'm sure, for many, many hours to yeah, come. Yeah, and New Matilda started up again, so we're, I'm going to be writing for New Matilda today. And Wonderful. And the website this week. Well, check out Ben's Twitter. It's at Ben Eltham. And, uh, yeah, check out New Matilda as well. They do some great journalism. Thanks so much, Ben. Thanks, Amy. We're now discussing and moving on to US politics, which really um, has been quite interconnected with Australian politics in the last week. And I'm really pleased to be able to speak with Amber Jamison, who's generously given us her time and is dialed in from New York. Hi, Amber. Hi, how are you going? Good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, always a pleasure. Now, uh, this been just such a great deal of things happening um, over there and and it really is quite um, interesting to see how relevant it's become domestically in Australia uh, with this discussion of the Australia and America Alliance. Um, with this this phone call, uh, which is just so famous now, um, Mm. Yeah, well, what really, what do we know that definitely happened? Um, you know, because this is obviously a leak from somewhere in the White House, you would assume. And why mm. do you think someone leaked this phone call and what do you think the implications are of it? Well, it's, it's interesting when you talk about why um, does someone leak the phone call because one thing that has been really dominant in the Trump administration in just a few weeks is that there has been so many leaks coming out, even though, as we know, um, you know, Trump has always been incredibly critical of the media, has been pushing that they are fake news and, and lie regularly, and yet clearly um, people within the Trump administration are, are leaking pretty heavily and also to like this is big media so it was the washington post that first had uh the story of the phone call um with donald trump and malcolm turnbull and this um whole thing where it was the shortest phone call it was only i think 26 minutes um trump hung up after the um discussion over the refugee deal and it's sort of interesting because 
you know, I, I know that it's totally dominated um, in Australian politics and Australian media. Here in, in the US, the main thing that everyone was saying is that everyone just kept... I mean, I saw so many tweets and updates of people just saying, like, what, don't start, a, like, a war or fights with Australia? Don't you know how scary those animals are? So I think, <laughs> in general, most... You, like, most Americans don't kind of... I know we sort of see the US as this, like, incredibly important ally, um, but most Americans don't really kind of view um, Australia in quite the same way. They know they're a strong ally, but they don't sort of view it as this incredibly important relationship that it is um, for for Oz. And so it's sort of really interesting, this sort of, like, battle between, you know, and, and like the whole thing was, like, these are people who have been, uh, you know, 1,250 people who have been classified as refugees, um, you know, the conversation happened the day after um, Donald Trump released an executive order banning refugees coming into the US for um, for 90 days, putting a suspension on the sorry, an indefinite suspension on on the, on the refugee um, program. So and also travellers too, is, wasn't it? So well, people yeah, travelling from those countries. And so it was, uh, refugees was uh, was a, a much wider ban, and then the one that has been much more, um, I guess, controversial, which is sort of interesting because in some ways the refugee aspect of it is huge, but it's gotten lost mm. um, a little bit here in the States in terms of the um, the travel ban because it's it's for residents from um, these certain seven countries, Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Iran, um, I'm blanking on now what the other, the other countries involved are. Somalia, the, I think um, there's some from Africa. Somalia. Yemen. Um, and, and the... You know, when this ban was first announced, this affected green card holders. So it was like this is permanent legal residents of the U.S. Um, these are, you know, people who have been living and working and have whole lives here in the U.S. Um, that may hold citizenship from another country as and and be here on um, a permanent visa. So when that was announced on. Um, Friday the 27th of January, you just immediately had huge protests um, across the entire weekend and legal challenges. It started, you know, on Saturday morning when there were all these tales of people arriving at the airport and being unable to, to exit. And immediately there were just thousands of people at airports all across the country protesting um, against this travel ban. And now we've just seen a variety of different legal challenges that have happened to it in the last uh, week, week. It's only been just over a Week. and then a Seattle court ruled um, and has suspended it at the moment and now we're waiting to see um, for the the government is, is appealing the decision. Um, but it's just sort of really, it's it's kind of been the, the most influential thing that, that Trump has done so far in his administration and has been incredibly divisive and incredibly, you know, you're just seeing thousands of people out on the streets and demonstrating and, and incredibly critical of it and yet at the same time it's also been proved to be quite um, popular in polls who have shown that they support um, a travel ban particularly amongst, amongst Trump supporters so it's it's going to be a difficult thing to see how this uh, it works in a, in, a, in a legal sense because it will possibly be unable to be held up legally but at the same time it, it remains popular amongst Trump supporters. And we just heard on Breakfasters actually this morning that in Australia, uh, in the news poll that came out yesterday, that uh, 50% of Liberal voters supported a similar move for Australia. So it is concerning to see that something that is so extreme um, has got a little bit of uh, popularity amongst conservative voters in Australia. But um, with that uh, green card scenario, have they revoked that... um, that part of the order or is that still uh, part and parcel of his executive order? 
They did revoke it, but they didn't revoke it until about Sunday when it was the um, the head of the um, Homeland Security, John Kelly, finally released a statement clarifying. And part of the problem was, which has been quite discussed, which is that this executive order was done without um, input from the Department of Homeland Security, so without input from sort of the um, Department of Justice. So it was on very sort of, one, staff were completely unaware of how to handle it. Border and Customs Patrol were not given any, they were just sent to this executive order and told to uphold it. And there has been a sort of no real um, discussion between the departments before the executive order was just released. So you're sort of seeing, you were sort of seeing, you know, the day after it was Trump's um, spokesman saying, yes, this includes green card holders. And then the Homeland Security saying, like, no, it doesn't. That's not what our immigration laws cover. Like, we cannot just change... Um, green card holders, um, you know, rights. Um, but you, you you were also seeing that happen in... And this is actually where it's very terrifying for travellers and individuals. It really often depended on the customs official that you would meet at an airport. Um, from some of the stories that we've got coming out, there was a CNN producer um, who was... Iraqi is the former head of the Baghdad Bureau for CNN and now lives in Atlanta, Georgia, which is where the head of C- the, head, the main offices for CNN are. And he arrived, he's a green card holder, and he arrived at 7pm um, in Atlanta airport. And that statement of saying that green card holders were to be, you know, not part of this executive order was sent about two hours earlier. And yet he was still stopped and told that it was um, possible that he might not be allowed to enter, he would need to go through extra screening, he would have more questioning. And and was told regularly that he uh, that he may not be able to enter. He has now filed a legal challenge um, against the government. Um, but the most successful legal challenge so far has been the state of Washington. So Washington, not Washington DC, the state of Washington uh, sued. The governor and the attorney general um, filed a, a lawsuit against the Trump administration, um, calling the the executive order discriminatory. And that is what has currently been. Um, upheld. That decision was made on on Friday. It came through at 7pm Friday just as we were all leaving for the weekend that arrived. And and that has currently suspended the whole executive order. So right now people should be able to come and go in, um, you know, with without a problem and yet everything also does very much seem to depend on the um, border official that, that you get when you try to go through the airport. That's really concerning. And one of the things um, regarding that uh, that judgment, which was made, I believe, by uh, Justice James Robart, um, is that Trump came out and tweeted and undermined um, his judicial authority, uh, calling him a yeah. so-called judge. What kind of... Um, Sorry, Amber. What kind of uh, what was he really doing there? Because I know he did more than just call him a so-called judge, and also, um, you know, that seemed to get people's backs up quite a lot. Well, and that was it. So he he tweeted. He also said that the judge essentially takes law enforcement away from our country. Um, and so, one in some ways, it sort of seems to be. And you know, you saw this when you had Angela Merkel have to explain parts of um, international conventions to Donald Trump. He doesn't necessarily seem to understand exactly what um, what the president uh, has legal powers to do and to not do, and that um, you know the government gets to make laws, but judges and courts get to interpret and uphold um, those laws. And so there does seem to be this really strong divide on on what 
powers he believes he can do and and whether they actually can legally be upheld. And so this is really where I think we're having this huge conflict and where you're also seeing a lot of his supporters um, be very critical um, of of the judge. And it really sort of plays into the thing that Trump has long argued, which he's sort of, you know, he's been criticised in the Supreme Court as having uh, too many liberal judges. He nominated... Um, you know, the new Neil Gorsuch, the new um, his Supreme Court nominee last week, who's very conservative. So he's been pushing for judges to be more conservative. But one of the things that has happened very quickly with this executive order is that it was immediately challenged in states and in big cities where judges are more likely to be liberal. So the very first ban happened in Brooklyn. Um, and the judge immediately just sort of said, like, no, this is not... Um, this is, you know, we're going to be putting a stay on deporting people who are currently held at airports. Then there was a challenge in Massachusetts, another liberal area, a challenge in LA, another liberal area. This one was in Seattle. Um, it's now going to be held in San Francisco. The appeals court for Seattle is San Francisco. So it's interesting that you're seeing these challenges happen in such liberal cities. Um, and it will be, I think, fascinating to see how, if they are challenged and upheld and if if the appeals continue um whether or not uh you know the trump administration will perhaps be trying to push them in states where they think that they might be more likely to get more conservative judges yeah and well that judge in particular apparently was appointed by george w bush so some people thought he was slightly conservative And that's the thing as well i think you can't i mean you've had people who are conservative come out um against this decision it's not um you know i I, this is a thing i think that is now even more relevant in in the u.s than ever before is that it's no longer the very clear cut of liberal conservatives and republican and democrat because you have had with the election of trump and even just throughout the entire campaign many many long-term republicans you know the bushes be um pretty horrified with what was going on with trump and the things he was saying and very much not seeing them as part of being conservative so i think even if um you know a conservative judge might have this decision that sort of goes very much against this sort of idea of discrimination which is just very clearly put in the US Constitution which is what most people who are conservative here in the US is sort of seen as their most holier documents so you know this it's it's a it's a sort of re- real reinterpretation of, of what you know side of politics means here right now and also drawing um, drawing drawing the judiciary and legal uh, representatives into something very political because um, it was it seems like almost a world ago and probably a year ago when um, but only just recently that an attorney general uh, resigned or quit yes. um, over this issue. Can you tell Fired. us more about that? Yeah, so that was Susan Yates who was the acting. Um, Attorney General, and she basically sent out a a letter to all the um, the lawyers um, of of the department, saying that when this executive order came out, that they were not to defend it because they won. They didn't have the legal ground to defend this executive order. They didn't have. I mean, one that, as I had mentioned, that this executive order was just done very quickly and without consultation from the different departments. One was that they had never prepared any legal documentation for it. I mean, this came out when the the case was first held in the Brooklyn court on the Saturday night and the the judges for the Department of Justice were on the phone and sort of saying that they they didn't have the available information required to argue this um, legally. So basically, she was the acting attorney general. She was left over from the Obama administration. They've been waiting for um, Jeff Sessions 
Evans uh, to be sworn in as the new Attorney General. And so she sent out this letter, and in some ways I sort of thought of her going out in a blaze of glory. She knew she was about to lose her job anyway. Um, and, you know, the job of the Attorney General, and she had been questioned over this previously by the man who is you know, the likely next Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, he had asked her previously if if she would stand up to a president um, if he was, or she, was doing something that they believed to not be legally sound. Um, and that was being questioned when Obama was president, and she said, of course, and that is basically what she was doing. She was sort of saying this goes beyond his executive powers and this is not something that we can argue. Um, Trump immediately fired her um, after she became she went public and, and someone else is now um, acting in the role at the moment. Um, so it was sort of this sort of moment where you are seeing, and in fact she was in some ways much more outspoken and dramatic than many of the Democratic politicians. The Democrats have, um, who have, you know, been outspoken against the ban but a little less... Um, you know, aggressive or a little bit more less likely to sort of put their jobs on the line than um, Susan Yates was as the Attorney General. It's really quite shocking to think that um, that that's a sackable offence uh, is to actually do your job and be independent. I know. <laughs> yeah, but there's more to is, come. And this is where we are right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this was only this was only you know what week two. Two, yeah. But week one, week where two. Where are we so, now, like, Amber? Know, <laughs> Yeah. Is it week two or week three? I don't even know anymore. Oh, it's two and a half weeks, I guess. But it's me. You know, and it's been fascinating because you've just seen just just enormous protests throughout the country. We've just had weekends of protesting and um, she and legal challenges. And you know, in some ways, you can sort of argue that maybe, regardless of if Trump you know, manages to uphold his executive order or not, he can still sort of say to his supporters that he implemented this and he tried to stop terrorists coming into the country, but that he was, you know, stopped by Liberal judges. So there's and, an argument that maybe news. he could claim it as a win. Exactly. Yeah. So there's an argument he could sort of claim it as a win either way. But at the same time, if he loses this um, and... You know, it's not a great time for him to have a Supreme Court challenge. His nominee is yet to be sworn in, and right now um, the Supreme Court is has not enough, it's sort of often, it, it's split, and it's also not hearing cases um, that until I think it's for at least another month or two, um, you know, because of this not having enough, and then the, uh, the extra judge. And so it's, you know, it could mean if he has losers in the Supreme Court, then that really can have a strong impact on his authority. It sort of gives, it opens up that, you know, any legislation or policies he's make may have very strong, you know, legal challenges placed against them. So it's, it's a, it, this has sort of become the sort of test of the presidency in this very short period of time. And he has really chosen a judge which is quite divisive. Um, he seems to be, uh, as I heard, I think, Bruce Shapiro say, um, quite extreme in his views on the Constitution. What mm. likelihood do you think he has of actually passing in terms of um, his nomination? Well, the, the funny thing, so one is that he's replacing, um, you know, Anthony Scalia, who was the very conservative judge on the bench. So in some ways, replacing a conservative with a conservative is, you know, it, the point of the, you know, that you want to have a diverse amount group of opinions um, on on the bench. Yeah. Um, so Neil Gorsuch, who is the nominee, the thing that's really interesting is that he is, you know, really into the, the Constitution and interpreting the Constitution um, very strongly. You know, this is a document written several hundred years ago. So, in some ways, it 
it can be very hard in, you know, it can be seen as incredibly conservative in um, modern day society to, you know, interpret everything as being word for word by the constitution. Yeah, so it's kind of like a time, purist approach? Exactly. But at the same time, because, you know, this, um, you know, this is a different issue than, say, gay marriage. Um, this being an issue that is... A, much more about, um, you know, you could argue, or much of what the legal challenges have all argued is very specifically about discrimination of certain people based on the country of their birth um, and religion. That actually is completely against what is said in the Constitution. So on certain issues, such as the executive order, you may actually find that a Conservative Supreme Court nominee may may actually rule against Trump's executive order. So it's it's a sort of weird sort of part of whether or not, because it's such a sort of, so specifically against where people are from and Muslim-majority nations um, and their country of birth, which is just, it's just clearly against immigration law, that that, that may actually sort of, you know, fail to, to be to Trump's benefit if he's thinking of launching um, a Supreme Court challenge. Mm, that will be really interesting. You make a great point there about, um, you know, interpreting it quite literally will have varying effects uh, in terms of the result and certainly if he is the swaying um, judge in terms of it already being quite split uh, 50-50, yeah, it's going to be fascinating mm. to watch. Um, Amber, just finally, with the uh, refugee deal um, that uh, we Ben and I have just been discussing briefly, uh, we were talking about um, how there's not a great deal in it for America and that it was probably a favour that uh, right. Barack Obama had done for yeah. Australia. Uh, do you think that, you know, even if Trump does go along with this and say, oh, well, yes, I guess I'll accept this deal, if their processes of extreme vetting, um, in quotation marks, are actually implemented, do you think anyone will even pass that test? That's a really good question. Um, yeah, I, so one, I personally can't imagine, because I think you're right, I think this was sort of a favour from Obama and, you know, it was a humanitarian um, gesture. Um, so one, I can't imagine um, Trump wanting to resettle up to 1,250 um, asylum seekers just based on what is currently going in this climate, it would sort of go, it would be very much going against exactly what he ha is saying and making, you know, like sort of the real pinnacle of his presidency. So I, I, one, cannot imagine that. But you're right in terms of the extreme vetting and what that will even mean. And perhaps that goes to, you know, maybe he's able to argue it to such a stage where he goes with the deal that then, you know, has such incredible vetting put amongst, you know, amongst it that no one could ever possibly pass that, you know, that remains to be said. And, the, you know, there is already incredible vetting of um, anyone coming to this country. As someone I know said the other day, and this applies to me as well, they said, I am white, I am from a, you know, friendly country, I am um, non-religious um, or agnostic, um, I have a job, I have an employee, I have all these things, of lawyer support, and trying to do applications for visas is an incredibly lengthy and difficult process for me, so I cannot imagine how it is for anyone who is affected by this executive order travel ban. So you, there are already incredible levels of vetting and if that is increased even further, then I think that will probably make it very difficult for any potential refugees that have already been classified as refugees that Australia is trying to palm off and not resettle themselves will make it even more difficult for them. 
That's a very good point, Amber. Um, (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. It's really wonderful to have you on the show to talk about this issue and have someone there on the ground who really gets what's happening. So much appreciated. It's nice to talk through my feelings. I appreciate your time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Amber. We're speaking now with Hugh McKay, who is a social researcher, very well-known Australian, who's been looking at uh, what Australians think, feel, do, and what really makes them tick, and the various societal issues that we face together. Uh, and Hugh has uh, he has given an, an oration at the UNSW uh, in Sydney, and it was a, a Gandhi oration, um, and uh, it really, I mean, it. it brings out the spirit of Gandhi. Um, I've had the good fortune of reading it. I wasn't there in person, but I certainly, uh, what uh, Hugh was talking about really resonated with me and I'm hoping to cover off on some of these issues. So thank you so much, Hugh, for joining us. Great pleasure, Amy. Good morning. Morning. And um, yeah, I just... The, I'll start from um, this idea of community and humanity, like a shared humanity that really um, is strong throughout your piece. And in some ways, the the various issues that we face and the global movements and changes um, that are occurring that you that you name throughout um, your speech or oration are somewhat undermining our ability to connect with each other and um, share uh, share stories with each other to show compassion for one another. Um, yes. You name three major contributors to a present level of anxiety and depression that a lot of, well, as you say, 20% of Australians have some form of mental illness. What what do you, um, could you share with us some of those um, contributing factors that you believe um, are are leading us to feel more isolated and anxious and uh, alienated? Yes, yes. it's a it's a slightly grim picture, although of course there are there are a lot of bright sides to this story because a lot of people in a lot of communities are doing very well. But on a on a big scale, uh, it is a rather uh, disturbing picture because um, just to go back to your your first comment, we are by nature social creatures. That that's what human beings are. We absolutely depend on communities not just to sustain us and nurture us but actually to define us you know our sense of who we are comes from where we belong Uh, and that's not just the neighbors that's friendship groups and families and workplace groups and there are lots of communities but the local neighborhood um, whether it's an apartment block or a caravan park or a suburb or um, and in a city terrace or whatever it is, it doesn't doesn't matter. Um, a neighbourhood place where people share the space is a very important contributor to our sense of security and our feeling of comfort in in where we live. Um, but at the moment, for example, Edith Cowan University a couple of years ago published a survey showing that only 35 percent of Australians say they trust their neighbours, uh, which is a very disturbing thing. So to come back to the to the three factors, um, it, it seems to me that a major cause of our rising, our epidemic of anxiety is this 
greater sense of social fragmentation and dislocation. And the three, the three things you mentioned, the first one is just the extraordinary number of social changes, none of which are bad, um, but when you take them all together, and I'll just quickly run through a little list, but when you take them all together, you see the cumulative effect of these changes is to, is to um, make local communities less stable and less cohesive than they used to be. Things like our sustained high level of divorce. About 35% of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce. Now that's hugely disruptive for the couples, but also for their extended families, their friendship circles, the local communities that they belong to, and of course for kids. Uh, there are a million dependent kids who now live with just one of their natural parents and half a million kids who are involved in a regular weekly or fortnightly migration from the home of one parent to the other. Uh, so that's, that's a, a major disruption that a couple of generations ago we didn't live with at all. Um, while we're talking about kids, the, the falling birth rate I think is a significant factor also, Amy, because as you can probably recall, and most of our listeners will recall, if you're new into, a, into an area, it's often the kids that make the first connections, you know, at school or in the playground or kicking a ball up the street or something. The kids get to know each other, the families get to know each other, and social networks are established. Well, uh, we're producing the smaller, relative to total population, we're producing the smallest generation of kids we've ever produced. Um, so that social lubricant is in shorter supply. Plenty of people are compensating for that, of course, by getting a dog. <laughs> so, Somewhat so cheaper. the birth rate falls, the rate of dog ownership rises, and there's a direct correlation between that, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know they're child substitutes because so many of these dogs are being given human names. Uh, but anyway, that's another and subject. And treated so, as, as um, humans in there, um, the way that they're given a, a great deal of medical attention. I know it's quite costly too. Oh, I know, yes. I, I, I recently encountered a dog owner who'd had her dog along to the dog psychologist. Wow. And she'd completed a very long questionnaire about her history of dog ownership and eventually when all the symptoms of this dog were described, the psychologist said to her, well, I'm afraid to tell you you have a special needs dog. <laughs> okay. <laughs> She's dealing with that. Well, that is, uh, anyway, that's so tough to deal with when you're speaking. There are a couple of other big household changes, Amy, that contribute to this. The shrinking household. Um, the single most common, the average Australian household is now 2.5 people, and the single biggest household type, and also the fastest growing household type in Australia is the single person household. Within the next 10 years or so, about one household in three will contain just one person. Now that's not a problem of itself, but it becomes a problem if people experience that as loneliness and if the other people in their neighborhood forget to include them or forget to keep in touch with them. Loneliness can often turn into feelings of social exclusion or uh, isolation or even alienation. So that's a, that's a big factor. The trend is continuing and it's a big factor to watch because it's transforming the nature of Australian neighbourhoods. 
Um, the two-income household is another factor. We're all busier uh, than ever, less time, less energy to devote to nurturing uh, the neighbourhood in the way that uh, we used to do when we seemed to be less busy. Um, and also, of course, um, uh, the, the, our love affair with high-rise apartments uh, which seems to be an unstoppable trend at the moment. Medium density housing seems to be very good for us because, you know, we're we're sort of close to our neighbours and it's easy to keep in touch. But high rise has the opposite effect. Um, people become very obsessed with um, personal privacy and security, uh, and less inclined to make eye contact and to say hello and all that stuff. Uh, plus the other big one, which. Um, I'm sure you're wondering why I haven't mentioned already, and that's the information technology revolution, which is a real paradox because on the one hand, of course, it does make us more connected, more almost continuously in touch with each other, but at the same time um, makes it easier than ever to stay apart from each other. You can send a text or do a Facebook post or uh, tweet something and not feel the necessity even to pick up the phone, let alone uh, meet someone for a cup of coffee. So all those things don't inevitably uh, fragment us and make us more isolated, but the trend is in that direction. And I think you know that means it's something we really have to fight against. So that's the first... Sorry to be so long-winded, but no, that's, that's the first okay. of the three. Um, I'll quickly deal with the others. The second one is uh, much more insidious, but I think in its way just as significant as all that social change. And this is the propaganda that bombards us daily uh, from two very different directions, completely unrelated, but with the same net result. One is consumer mass marketing, which keeps on saying to us, it's all about you, your happiness, your prosperity, your wealth, your comfort, your stuff. You're entitled to all this stuff. Uh, and if you doubt whether we've fallen for that propaganda, just look at our levels of personal debt uh, as we strive to buy more and more stuff. Uh, which is which is a very it's often very competitive and very individualistic as well as materialistic. Um, but the other source of propaganda, less obvious, is um, what I think of as the happiness propaganda. There's almost a happiness industry. People running conferences and selling books and doing TED talks and generally trying to, and pushing drugs of various kinds, generally trying to convince us that we are, as humans, we are entitled to personal happiness, that that's our default position, and uh, that if you're not happy, there's something wrong with you. So pop one of our pills or buy one of our books or do one of our courses and get happy. Um, it's a crazy proposition because it denies the fact that Happiness can only be experienced by contrast with sadness, that there's a whole spectrum of human emotions uh, that we have to deal with and that help us to cope with what life throws at us. And every point on the spectrum is authentic and legitimate, uh, and no point makes any sense without the context of all the others 
So it's a really odd thing to suggest to people that they should be pursuing one emotional state, namely happiness. Uh, the thing to pursue, of course, is wholeness, you know, a sense of meaning in your life. But if you're going to chase happiness, well, of course, ancient philosophers and mystics through the ages have always said if you're going to chase happiness, you'll never find it. Happiness is just a, pri a byproduct of a life well lived. And a life well lived will also bring plenty of sadness and pain and disappointment and loss. And all those things have things to teach us. Uh, and rushing on to the third factor, the other one is the, the obvious big, the big threats factor, the, the threat of climate change, international terrorism, potential global economic meltdown, which operates as a sort of background rumble of anxiety, which causes many people to deal with the feeling that this is all far too big, far too much beyond our control. So instead of confronting these things, many people just hide from them by retreating into self-absorption, by saying, well, I'm going to focus, I can't control any of that stuff. Uh, I can't even control some of the big social issues we face, like what to do with asylum seekers or Aboriginal health or the homeless or whatever it might be. I'll focus on what I can control. I'm going to renovate the bathroom or find the perfect kid, uh, perfect uh, school for my kid or the perfect latte for myself. Uh, so that, that can also often lead to a very personal... Uh, self-obsessed self-obsessed individualistic response so um, sorry that was so long-winded it's a very quick survey of some very big themes but but you see but well, the bottom line of all this is the the pressure is away from our natural state as social beings who need each other towards thinking of ourselves in more competitive less cooperative a more individualistic fragmented kind of way yeah and that reminds me of something um i read a while ago uh, by called prosperity without growth where tim jackson from the uk uh also agrees with you and says that um this this desire to continually acquire material possessions and grow our economies uh even though it's unsustainable isn't really a natural human thing to do uh and yeah. that actually our natural tendency would be towards having a sustainable community supportive uh economy that is moderated and tempered by uh this sense of compassion and moderation yes uh, I agree. That's extremely well put, and I you know, agree absolutely with him. That my thesis is identical to that. Um, and uh, you've, you've mentioned the word compassion, which uh, you know ends up being the main theme of my of my Gandhi uh, lecture last week, because obviously the way to counteract all of these pressures that are driving us apart is to rediscover what it truly means to be human. And by the way, I'm not about to suggest that we should all be best friends with our neighbours, um, but I do think the, the old injunction, love your neighbour, needs to be rethought. You know, it's very easy to make that sound ridiculous as though, well, you know, I, could, I couldn't possibly love my neighbour. Uh, you know, they're actually very weird or I don't approve of their child-rearing habits or they've got a different religion from mine or a different taste in music. I know all those things that neighbours have, we're all very different. But what that's really saying, of course, is 
whoever you encounter, neighbour, I mean, it's a very Christian idea in a way that we redefine neighbour to mean anyone that we, that we come up against, strangers included, that um, that our attitude towards any anyone, any stranger, any neighbour, the person next door, the person down the street, or someone uh, that we encounter, uh, needs to be marked by kindness, compassion, respect, and so that it's love in that sense. Love is is perhaps a dangerous word because people think in love romantic means, terms. Yeah, or you know, that has to be an emotional response, whereas in that sense of compassion, which is very much the Gandhi idea also, that's got nothing to do with whether you happen to like someone or not, or what your emotional response to them is. That kind of love, that kind of compassion is a mental discipline where you can, it's not easy by the way, but, um, but that's, the way, that's the way you transform societies by transforming households streets, neighbourhoods, communities, by adopting as a rule of life that I'm going to be kind and I'm going to be compassionate towards those I meet, especially those I don't like or who I know I don't agree with. Um, it's a great challenge to Americans at the moment. The people who didn't vote for Donald Trump have to find compassion and respect towards those who did and a lot of them are struggling to do that, of course. Yeah, they are. And I want to pick up on what you're just saying about this idea of neighbours and um, really connecting with them face to face because I have an interesting experience that uh, I grew up uh, down the coast and uh, it was very, it had a small town vibe, but it certainly wasn't a rural town. Uh, But then some of my family lived in a rural town and we used to visit there quite often. And I recently went back there and people I hadn't seen for about... 10 years, I probably was a a child, potentially in high school or even primary school at the time, uh, would just cross the road, come up to us and say hello and give you a big hug. And I was quite taken aback because, you know, I now live in Melbourne and that is certainly not the approach that... um, that you encounter in the city and let alone uh, even in the coast at the moment it's it's decreased even more we don't have street parties anymore and we don't really know our neighbours as well uh, but this uh, country and rural um, sense of community really took me aback and made me quite nostalgic for an, an older time when that was just the norm and presumably it was more common in, in uh, more regional and metro areas. Have you seen a change and seen any of those distinctions yourself in the social research you're doing? Yes, absolutely, Amy. And in fact, what you've described, many, many Australians uh, of all ages would, would comment on a similar change that's occurred. Uh, it's, it, it's occurred mainly in the last 30 years, I think, Um, uh, in some places more quickly than that. But the typical metropolitan uh, situation now in cities like Melbourne and Sydney and Brisbane, uh, and increasingly in in big regional centres as well, is people actually avoid eye contact. People train themselves not to smile and say hello you know and kids are raised on the idea of stranger danger as though if you smile at someone in the street you're going to be in trouble um which is very very uh anti-social um and obviously kids have to be taught 
to look for danger signs, but the idea that all strangers are a potential source of danger um, is exactly the opposite of what we need to be teaching our kids. But yes, we, we've now reached the stage where it's almost an urban cliche uh, that we don't know our neighbours. And I think, you know, no one ever says that. It's, it's fascinating. When people do say that, they never say, uh, we don't know our neighbours with a sense of pride or satisfaction or celebration. You know, finally, I've reached this stage where I don't know my neighbours. It's wonderful. Uh, they always say it rather wistfully, as though there's something wrong with this. You know, we should know our neighbours. Um, but yes, there are, as you say, many rural areas where you still find that, and that's a very touching story about going back all those years later. But there are parts of Melbourne. Uh, there are there are streets and little communities where, um, particularly where there's a bit of footpath traffic, where people are still walking and saying good day as they pass, or there are occasionally, you know, drinks parties and. Uh, where neighbours are still looking out for each other and saying this place feels like a neighbourhood. But it's getting, for all the reasons we've been exploring, it's getting harder to achieve. So so I think the big message is not to give up. You know, when, when you were talking about where you grew up uh, down the coast, where there used to be street parties and now there aren't, I mean, someone just needs to have one and suddenly there is a street party. Uh, and that initiative in various parts of the world. Someone wrote to me recently about his recent experience in a in a French community where uh, the local government uh, had encouraged uh, more um, community gatherings in local parks and you know people bringing their own food and drink and just getting to know each other. And so it does go on, but someone has to take the initiative, otherwise. Uh, given all these other pressures we've been talking about, it's just too easy to drift in the direction of individualism. And so I guess one of the things that people can do is just what you're saying, to do something, take an initiative, uh, host a party or a social gathering or say hello to their neighbour on the footpath or introduce yes. themselves. Um, yes. Even if it feels weird or someone might initially think you're a bit weird for doing so if it's not really the norm in behaviour anymore, uh, what are the other things that you think might be able to reverse some of this um, anxiety and disconnection? Is there some way that uh, we can be more um, thoughtful and self-aware and controlled with our use of technology? Yes, absolutely. I think we've got a. We, we, there's going to have to be a counter-revolution. It's obviously gone too far, and uh, some of the research coming out about heavy internet use and um, heavy mobile phone use and so on does indicate uh, a, a correlation with heightened a heightened sense of anxiety. And there's no mystery about why that is, because it's this paradox of feeling connected but actually being socially disconnected, because it's not, you know, we're built for face-to-face -face contact. So uh, we do have to be more conscious of that, be more disciplined, limit it, not, not abandon it, but use it more wisely, be its master, not its servant. But also locally, we need to join. You know, we need to go to book clubs and make sure we regulars at a local cafe or coffee shop or at a library discussion group or at a local 
um, you know, netball team or whatever it is, you know, a church, um, community choir, community gardens, all these things are out there um, uh, calling out for people to come and be part of it. Uh, and unless we are prepared to take a step forward, uh, then the community won't be nurtured. And if the community is not nurtured, if communities start to suffer from our lack of engagement, then, of course, we all suffer. And that, I think, you know, there's more, more than one explanation of our epidemics of anxiety and depression, but I'm sure this is a very significant contributor. Um, I couldn't agree more. And um, just picking up on the social media um Aspect Certainly I use social media a lot. Uh, but it's true that if you see on Facebook that your relatives from far away are posting pictures of their babies and giving you updates about their life developments, you almost feel like that box is ticked and uh, you don't really need to revisit it or actually delve even further with them on to, in really how are things going with you. Yes, that's right. It's, it's fascinating what's happened with... Um, uh, Facebook in particular uh, and social media in general it, it's that, that's a very good description what, what you said it's inevitably for most in most encounters there are exceptions again I'm, I'm generalizing but most encounters are pretty superficial and they're in the direction of bragging rather than communicating you know here's a here's a picture of what I had for breakfast this morning isn't it sensational or how do you like my new top um, uh, or this is what I did. Uh, it, it's it's you know it's not the kind of medium where you say, "Gee, I'm feeling a bit blue." You know, could we could we get together for a cup of coffee? I just need to chat to someone. Um, that that sort of stuff is not welcome. What's what's welcome is isn't everything terrific? Absolutely. And um, in terms of your, you were come, you did come to this, um, but I'd like to just draw it out a little bit more about um, your conclusions and the and the the reason why this is in a, a Gandhi oration is because um, that the importance is around compassion and being human again and exploring our humanity and what it is to be human. Um, what are some of the takeaways that you hope to impart? Um, you know, obviously part of that is connecting with your neighbours or a large part of that is and connecting just with other humans but um, yes. can you just expand a little more on what you hope um, you know our listeners and and all Australians to be doing yes um, I, I used a quote from Gandhi uh, Amy which is not a terribly well-known quote but I, I think and it's rather an obvious point but I it struck me uh, with great force I'll just turn it up uh, Gandhi said you may never know what results come of your actions but if you do nothing, there will be no results. And that led me to say that I think the, the solution to this growing problem of anxiety caused by social uh, isolation and fragmentation is for us to imagine the kind of society we'd like to live in, and you've, you've described it in some of your own reflections, uh, but we imagine the kind of society we'd like to live in, and then if enough of us start living as if it is that kind of society, then that's, what, that's the kind of society, society it will become. It's not, it's not a mysterious point at all. It just means if we, if we wish 
that people in our suburb were a bit friendlier if people did make eye contact. If you're standing at a bus stop, people would just say, looks like rain or anything to make human contact and acknowledge that we each have a place on the planet. Uh, if you think all that's good, well, then start doing it. You know, if you think we've gone overboard with social media, start limiting your own social media use. Make more effort to get face-to-face -face with friends and uh, spend time to chat to neighbours, all those things. I, I think it's... I mean, obviously, you can think about big social policy issues and what the government should do and why aren't our politicians more visionary and inspirational and all that sort of stuff. But actually... I think the real message uh, in all this is we have to act because there is a part of the world where we can exert direct influence. And when you're talking about the character of Australian society and the values of Australian society, that really is up to us. I mean, we're the people who give our society its character. Absolutely. And it is a beautiful character, um, I've got to say. And, and certainly, as I mentioned in my story about rural Australia, that to me yeah. typified exactly what I hope to see in a, in a nation and in a community. And, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with hugging <laughs> in my <Yeah>. eyes. <laughs> no, absolutely. And that's actually, actually one of the good signs about the rising generation uh, is there is more hugging. Uh, and that's, you know, that's greatly to be encouraged. Definitely. Um, Hugh McKay, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us your um, thoughts and, and what you spoke of at the oration. Um, it's definitely been really thought-provoking and I hope has um, started people on a path of action. Well, I hope so too, and it's been lovely to talk to you. Thank you for being interested, Amy. <laughs> Always. Thanks, Hugh. I'm really pleased to be able to um, have... A, hopefully will be an in-depth discussion now with Barry Dickens. He's a playwright and author um, and many other things, but just a, a seriously talented Australian writer. Uh, thank you so much, Barry, for joining us. It's my delight to be here. Um, so, Barry, you've written a book which has just been released, I believe, last week, um, and this is a specific reason for that release date because uh, the book is about Ronald Ryan. He's the last man to be hanged in Australia, and it was really a very um, public and tumultuous period and event uh, for many reasons, but uh, it comes up to the 50th anniversary, uh, which happened last week, and it still really is just as contested and as heated now when we sometimes discuss this issue of, of Ronald Ryan and, and what he did to deserve um, being hanged and whether he actually did anything at all to, to deserve it. Um, so, first of all, your book is, it's non-fiction, but it has um, a very Fiction, fictional way of describing and um, talking and communicating this character, Ronald Ryan, and the various people that he meets and um, falls in love with and he has children um, and the people that he, the one person he escapes with in prison. I want to bring it to back to your description of um, Ronald Ryan and who he is as was as a person, the type of human he was, because yeah. um, it really is fascinating to read your description of him 
he seems seemingly quite contradictory. On the one hand, um, you write of him as being pious and reliable and his mother said of him before he was hanged that he was a good boy. Um, but then, you know, he had this other really dynamic um, and infectious side. He was really charismatic and hilariously funny, as you describe. And these are anecdotes based on true stories of, you know, people who've met Ronald Ryan. Um, and that when he looked at something, he thought it was his for the taking. So can you explain to me and just draw out a little bit mm. of this seemingly contradictory personality? Well, I think that the child in Ryan was the greater proportion. Uh, he was childlike as opposed to childish. And, um, and yet at the same time, there was a sort of a guile or a world weariness at war with that, with that cherubic quality. And the people that I've met who were quite young when they met him said that there was one guy I met who'd been drinking with Ryan at the Kent Hotel in the Trobe Street in the late 50s and Ryan was generous, munificent, the old word munificent, and buying him schooners, pots called in Melbourne, icy cold ones, full strength, giving him smokes without end. This, And the guy told me, he, he was a student at Melbourne Tech when he met Ronald Ryan at the Kent Hotel uh, I met hundreds of people who've known him or have lied that they've known him, which is just as interesting. And um, he, he said, I've never in my life cried as much w with laughter as this guy, Ronald Ryan. Just the way he sat on the stool at the bar made me laugh. He could make me laugh by dangling his sock at me because he'd kicked his shoe off or something. <laughs> and Chaplin once said that you make people laugh with your feet. And that's true, I think, through pantomime. But the guy said he was ill with laughter after a few schooners with Ronald Ryan, or pots as they're called in Victoria. When they got out of La Trobe Street, he was like a brother, like a brother in Christ or something. And then he patted his kick, and the word kick used to be your pocket in the 50s, your right. kick. That's where you kept your wallet in your pocket. Yep. And, of course, there was no sign of his wallet. <laughs> and so the whole time he, he said that he was ill with laughter, not just with Ryan's verbosity and, and nonchalant humour, but he was pulling faces. Uh, he was a clown. And then, uh, you know, and there was a... He was at war with himself, the, the comic side and the sort of a opportunistic side. He was 31 before he broke the law, which is old, before you go to jail. And that was all misdemeanours and stealing cigarette trucks and cigarettes. He's very fond of Craven A, the cigarette. He used to <laughs> sell them around the pubs. When I met Father Brosnan, who was the Roman Catholic priest at Pentridge, I mean, what a congregation to have, you know, 2,000 murderers as your flock. And uh, he said that Ryan was a pub dada, and the word dada was forties and fifties word for someone who was opportunistic and would trick you, and dupe you. Yep. You were duped, you know. But it was worth the fun. So people who didn't trust him liked him because he was the fun. He had the life, and uh, the showman part of his, uh, you know, personality. It's like he's a th theatrical, someone amusing. And obviously that's part of what attracted Dorothy to mm. Ronald Ryan. She, right. She's a very interesting character in herself because she came from a very well-off background. Yeah, the exact opposite. Yeah, and, and Ronald, it seems, had a very difficult upbringing in terms of right. the poverty he came from but also the alcoholism mm. yeah. um, that he was surrounded by. And yeah. I really um, just was 
taken aback by this really intense description of the rooming house that he was right. living in in West it's, Footscray. It's still there, as I've said in the book. Yeah. Oh, gosh, I'd be really scared <laughs> to see what it looks like now yeah. based on what you've described. It's opposite the Botanical Gardens at Footscray. Right. And it was, um, it's called Room Suit Gent. Room Suit Gent. I mean, that old name. wording is yeah. still there. And and he, he toiled as a... Uh, in those days, in the 50s, when he met Dorothy, he was a, a moulder at a tyre factory called Olympic Tyres. And there were tyres then called retreads. Yep. Old worn-out tyres were stamped. The tread was stamped into them again hmm. about 10 years ago since that went out. But he was a moulder, called a moulder, stamping. Imagine being covered in tyre blacking and dust and stuff. And he had a... The only thing he'd ever paid for was an iron-framed push bike with an extended saddle on it made of iron, can you imagine? And then one hot night he cycled off to uh, the Jolly Roger Ferry, which was moored at Flinders Street where, where the water was and the bridge, Princess Bridge. And in the late 40s they had the Jolly Roger and other ferries that you danced on and they had Glenn Miller music playing. And he was a great dancer, according to Dorothy, who I interviewed at Port Macquarie when she lived there. And, uh, and they jitterbugged. <laughs> so you've got a hanged man jitterbugging. Yeah. And I wanted to show all the qualities the, and the accidental moments. And so I said, what did you think when you saw Ronald, Dorothy? She lived at a caravan park at Port Macquarie and it took a year before I got her permission to talk because it hurt so much to talk about him. She said he was just so funny and beautifully uh, he could quote... It was a great reciter of poetry. So you can be recited at where it's just boring mm. or it can be done in such a way that you've written the poem that you're saying or reciting. And he was an intellectual and a great jitterbugger. It, that is just a beautiful <laughs> portrait of a man and the whole book is really the portrait of the man yeah. and the people that see him through various ways uh, when they come across They're him. They're endless, the ways to see him. And yeah. he loved his hair. I mean, he loved mm. having glossy black, I suppose you could call it Catholic hair, but he loved that. And just just before he was hanged, he asked the governor, Ian Grindley, whether it would be all right to comb his hair to look good for his mother when he went through, and that wasn't permitted. And so he used a bit of spit to put it on his black hair, but he wanted to look as good as he yeah. could before they put the hood over him. So, And his tortoise shell, I think you said comb in the book. Was, tort tortoise shell comb. Yeah, yeah, his most prized possession in prison, apart well, from the Bible, which he also... Yeah, well, uh, good luck for me. I've always been lucky. And um, I knew and was friends with the Catholic... I mean, not the Catholic, but the Salvation Army woman who lent Ryan uh, her edition of the Catholic Bible. And she used to go to the Albion Hotel in Carlton in the 60s and 70s with her wooden box to collect change for the needy and she'd push it into the pot stomachs of all the male drunks on a sweltering hot night and she'd say, going by your gut, you've got enough beer in there and enough money. How about a bit of change for the needy? And she'd push the plywood money collection box into their bloated stomachs and they'd feel guilty and drop a few bob into the slot. Well, she it was who gave Ryan the Catholic Bible. Yeah. And uh, she talked to me about that and how he learnt it. He learnt the Bible. When he knew he'd be hanged, he went back to being a Catholic. And he asked Father Brosnan, who's one of the most charismatic people you'd ever want to meet, what's involved, he said, Ryan, in, in it's coming on tomorrow, the hanging, what's involved? Is it a complicated thing? Because I was married Church of England, and to please my mother, I'm going back to be a pat. 
and Pat was the nickname, the euphemism for Catholic. And as typical of John Brosnan, he said, it's no more uh, complicated, Ryan, than re-registering a car <laughs> to make him smile, yeah. you know. And uh, when he shook hands with Father Brosnan, he's, Father Brosnan said, Ronald Ryan, and Ryan said, Spencer Tracy, because <laughs> he looked like Spencer the Tracy, famous, who'd yeah. played so many Catholic priests. Yeah. So I wanted to keep that playfulness yeah. at counterpoint to the doom. It's a book of doom, and the doom is to do with 8 o'clock on the 3rd of Feb that nothing will stay the execution. And the poor things on the hill, all the ones protesting, mm. and the five churches around around Pentridge gonged all the bells all morning and broke those sombre bells protesting against the execution because where Pentridge, it's now apartments, bizarrely enough, is uh, five different churches of all different denominations. All those bells were gonging for him. Yeah, and it really seemed to stop the city uh, or at least the state. And uh, yeah. I did read that the ABC radio station went off air or went silent for two minutes when yeah. he was hanged as well. There was a live broadcast from 3AW, Macquarie, which goes right around the country, and I'm friends with Brian Morley who did the stand-up and he, Brian told me that when the 12 reporters were watching the execution, which took place 60 feet above their heads on a bizarre sort of platform, he said that Ryan, before they popped the poplin hood over his head, he winked at him. He winked at Brian. Brian said, that wink's been with me for 50 years. It's really the last thing that he did as he a human. He went just before the hood, the poplin hood. Yeah. And then the hangman ran at him, ran at him with welder's goggles over his eyes and a bizarre tan-coloured, like a strange cap with a, with a pom-pom on it yeah. to disguise himself and was rough with Ronald and shoved him towards the trapdoor and Ryan was off balance and he said, for God's sake, make it quick. Yeah. And that's, they're the last words, you know. And then the, the reporters down below had to be, uh, weren't allowed to uh, tape anything or record anything, just stand there with invitation cards in their grasp. RSVP, invitation cards, I've seen them. Mm. As if you're going to a debutante's ball. Yeah, they seemed really formal and quite large, white. Glossy. Yeah, as if, as if you're going to a ball. I mean, everything about the story is an opera. Yep. And having written it in every which way, I think I'll pay a call to the opera company and see if they want it. And it is an opera. I hope so because yeah. it really is. And let's take it back now to yeah. what he apparently did. So we know that he escaped from yeah. Pentridge um, with a man who he actually didn't know the, the right. name of. Well, only a, a lapsed Catholic would escape with a guy he didn't know. Yeah. I mean, there's the opera truth. Yeah. He escaped with a guy called Peter Walker because he was so huge and Ronald was going to get out with this other guy. We should tell your listeners and your fans that they were both in for 17 years and uh, Ryan had uh, robbed a warehouse armed with a rifle. If he hadn't have had a rifle, mm. it would have been 18 months. Right. But because he was armed... But he didn't use the rifle. He didn't use it, but because he held a rifle yeah. that's armed robbery and he got 17 years... At hard labour, and at hard labour means that you are pulverising bluestone boulders with a great big iron-tipped hammer. And Ryan was so naive, he thought that, um, that that would do the community some good, that the bluestone chips would be used in gutters and things like that. But when one of the officers said, no, there is no point to, the, there's no point to this, mm. it's to break you. 
not the boulders. That's when he decided to get out with Peter Walker. Yeah. And they, they got out in the most eccentric fashion and then they were interrupted by a prison officer named George Hodson who was enormous and drunk and he had, there was a Christmas party going on. Because this was December the 19th, 1965. Yeah, and a heat wave. It was... The book covers the heat of Melbourne. Mm. During the it's escape and during the trial and during the hanging, Melbourne had never been hotter. So I've tried to write... The literature of the book is to do with extreme doom and heat simultaneously rising yep. to its crescendo. And you were saying that the tar on, on the... the tar, bubbling. Yeah, yeah. And that when George fell, the two officers shot him from the tower because he's standing so close to Ronald that he, he couldn't get a clean shot. Either of them, uh, those those guards in the end, committed suicide in the sure knowledge they'd shot George. And, and that's uh, that's part of the contested, I guess, history of this story yeah. is that um, in the court case that eventuated that people, um, you know, there's various theories as to who shot uh, George Hodson right. yeah. and... Uh, and your theory, which many others would subscribe to, um, suggests that the bullet trajectory needed yeah. to come from above because um, it was at an angle yeah. and also from further away because That's right. Ryan was at point-blank range, basically. I'd like to know who's got the bullets and where, where police homicide have put those bullets. I mean, there were three of them and Ryan, Ryan's rifle didn't work and it didn't make smoke. Mm. And yet would- the jury were bullied into agreeing that... You know, the witnesses, I mean, that they saw smoke come out of the breach, but the American-made carbine didn't make smoke. There's a whole lot of reasons that he couldn't or wouldn't fire the, fire the, fire the rifle yeah. at George. He knew him well and, and they were friends. So none of the public could guess that uh, Hudson was friendly with Ryan. Mm. And I think, I believe they used to play, was it chess together? Yeah, checkers and drafts. And, and, yep. and George had a lot to drink, homemade hooch, and he was laughing, saying, come on, come on, give it away, you haven't got a chance. Mm. Meaning, come on, come yeah. on. He called him boy, come on, boy, you haven't got a chance. Bang, 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 and the shots came from the tower. Then George fell into the crowd at the tram barrier, which is still there. The right. tram barrier is exactly where it was 50 years ago in Champ Street, Coburg. And it's bizarre. It's as if 50 years haven't, haven't, haven't gone passed. by. It's, if it's, it's now. Yeah, and um, certainly this, this really sets off a whole trail or, you know, a whole series of other actions and events that occur. So mm. this happens and uh, the prison guard dies and then, um, you know, all of Melbourne is basically hunting for That's right. <laughs> Peter Walker and Ronald Ryan and they do a pretty good job of avoiding but the, but the, the other, police. the other comic elements is that Walker wanted to go to Preston he wanted to go to Preston, you know. He had a girlfriend in Preston. So they're sort of quarrelling in the stolen car and Ryan says, I've never liked Preston. I don't <laughs> like Preston, you know. What's Preston got apart from Murray Road, you know? Then they did a Yui and went towards the flour mill at Kensington and in that street where the fl- still there, the big flour mill, there was a harbour. It was called harbouring when you put people up. Yeah. And they stayed there that night with every police car in the country after them. 
Yeah, and as you say, a lot of people thought that um, that Ronald Ryan was stealing their tomatoes. That's or right. Well, my <laughs> dad, my dad, my late beautiful father thought that Ryan was knocking off his tomatoes in the backyard, and yeah. yes, there was a tomato steak missing one night. I remember, <laughs> and dad thought that Ryan had got over the back fence to pinch his pomodors. And it, it did capture a lot of people's imagination and their fury as well. That's right. Um, and, you know, people did jump to the um, assumption that Ronald Ryan was guilty. He hadn't yet been captured yet. Uh, but That's certainly right. there was a bit of um, a feeling amongst the general population That's and right. certainly even um, many politicians who thought that Ronald Ryan was responsible. Um, so we go. They go to Sydney. Yeah. Um, so they've you know swapping number plate, you know letter plates <laughs> on their cars and um, avoiding capture. And then finally they're captured. How does that happen? Just be, just before we go to that, yeah. the number plates is worth a laugh because mm. you, in those days you, someone had come into a pub like the Albion or Stewart's Hotel, which is still there in Elgin Street, and say on a hot day with all the drunks flopped out on the stools. Someone had come in with a sugar bag full of bodgy plates and just dropped them on the bar, you know, yeah. 40 bucks for them. <laughs> and they're all bodgy, they're various number plates. So Ryan got got a bag of plates and every car they pinched, they put different numbers on. Then they got to Wodonga. Now, Wodonga, the police pulled them over at Wodonga in a, in a Lincoln, great big posh car that Ryan had bought off Kevin Dennis. Kevin Dennis used to be television personality. And he had a, a second-hand car yard in Regent next to Reservoir. And they, and he, how Kevin Dennis didn't know yeah. that they were Ryan, he didn't. And he sold them <laughs> a Lincoln. And then Walker disguised himself with um, peroxide and practiced... And he had black hair, didn't he? And, pr- pr- and, and imitated Michael Caine. <laughs> I mean, if this was wow, an opera, I don't know yeah, what it is. Because yeah. at Wodonga, and I've interviewed the two police that... She, Talk to them at Wodonga. That's yep. where the fruit fly inspection used to be. Mm. You mean trying to pinch bananas? He's trying to, you know, talk like Michael Caine and all. And uh, <laughs> of course he isn't. And the guy says, "What's your name, mate?" He says, "Sugar." I'm Michael Caine's brother, Sugar Caine. <laughs> of course he isn't. Oh gosh, it, it's just hilarious. Yeah, it is quite hilarious. Uh, and it isn't. Yeah, so. and very yeah, sad. Mm. Yeah, and and so they. They're in Sydney and they're, you know, drinking beer at pubs and yeah, sure. um, womanising a little bit. And actually, I should mention before that, before they left Victoria, um, Peter Walker was, uh, he shot a, a tow truck driver who actually figured out who they were. Yeah. That was at a party in Henry Street, Windsor. And a, f- a friend of mine, Sonny Naidu, was at that party. Sonny Naidu was a producer for Paul Cox. And he ended up at that party of all flukes that hot night. And they're all dancing the twist at Henry Street and a party. And uh, Ryan and Walker turned up and later on they'd run out of drink. And the tow truck driver offered to take Peter Walker to a sly. A sly grog was called a sly mm-hmm. in Albert Street, Albert Park. And got there and they got a few boxes of drink. And then the tow truck driver said, oh, let's put him in, your mate, and share the $10,000 reward. And... In the end, he was shot in the in the public toilet, uh, sitting on the toilet. And in the morning, the tow truck driver Arthur Henderson was found floating in the foreshore wavelets. And then he got back to the party and said to Ryan, "You've done one. I've done one. Mm. Meaning you've killed someone. Yep. I've killed someone." Fancy saying that no. in front of people. Yeah. This is the bravado and 
and the terror that's going through them. Yeah, and and it becomes an interesting point of contrast when we get to the to the trial and who, yeah. um, you know, is put up for murder and who's put up for manslaughter. So Peter Walker. Yeah. Well, yeah. they both charged with murder. Yeah. And Walker was charged with the murder of Arthur Henderson, mm. tow truck driver, and and Ryan for George Hodgson, and uh, Ryan was first. The trial uh, was first, and he's found guilty. And sentenced to be hanged. And in that moment, in those days, you had a slate where you could write remarks yep. on a wooden slate. And Walker got the giggles when Ryan was sentenced to hang. He thought that was funny. And wrote and did a cartoon of a skeleton being hanged. And he wrote underneath it, you. Mm. You. As if like a schoolboy howler. Yeah, yeah. But I can understand that too. It's They're defiant. I mean, what have you got to lose? Yeah, and a lot of, interestingly, part of the context of this is that people who were sentenced to hang, and you, that was the um, requirement, really, if you were found guilty of murder was death by hanging, mm. um, that a lot of those times the sentences were commuted and, you know, you would just yeah. do a very long prison sentence. Yeah, but because the election was coming up in April when Ronald was hanged on the 3rd of Feb, 67, the election was the 7th of April, those in the Cabinet could see that Ryan would guarantee a, an election victory if they pursued a law and order ticket. In other words, be more hardline than, than ever before. The Conservatives in Victoria adored that and voted Baldini, romped it in. And a lot of people thought that Bolte was soft on crime because these two prisoners had managed to escape such a seriously, um, well, difficult to escape from prison. It's, it was like yeah. you had to be pretty um, clever and athletic to even escape, let alone continue on the run for such a long period That's of time. If you ever look at the, the uh, police homicide file photos of the escape it is it is we keep using the word hilarious but it is because what they've used to escape with are things like dressing gown cords underpants paper cardboard wire anything to get a length of something you can get yourself up those it's a 70 foot ascent to the Mm. top of the bluestone and uh, but i think you know looking at the malmesbury riots of, of last week or the week before and then hearing out what our premier was saying about those youths he was threatening them with hardline and he said, um, Daniel Andrews said, if you want to play hardline with me, I'll give you hardline. I'll send you to adult prison. And then I thought, you really don't get it. You don't understand why they are setting fire to those lockdown cells. 17 hours when you're 15, bored and you know, no air conditioning. Yeah, and no wonder you lose your way when there's no one to not love you but no one to care for you and... Mm. Uh, I think the government are to look after us, not to execute us. Well, and that brings us to this real issue, which is what captured people's um, concern and rage when this all was happening. Um, You know, after the trial, there were protests because people did not want Ronald Ryan and a great deal, but there were some people who did want him to hang for this Mm. um, crime. But also there were lots of people who thought, no, uh, capital punishment is not okay. It's really an eye for an eye is not ethical. It's not right. And the state should not be sanctioning murder. So how, what was it like at that time in Australia and in Victoria and in particular Melbourne and and outside of Pentridge um, Jail? The media were howling for the hanging, the 3AW, the conservative radio stations were demanding it 
um, the family uh, in extremis. Um, my line is is to show the trauma of the loved ones when a hanging happens. Uh, whether you're, you believe in Catholicism or not, you are hanged by the neck. Um, the reporters hear your neck breaking. Uh, and there were thousands of people who protested at Coburg, but they're a drop in the ocean compared to the millions who voted the Nationals in. Mm. So they knew they would win the vote and that's what they wanted on Ryan. And in terms of his last days and the kind of message that um, you per- purveying the book it's really that um this man is eventually resigned to his fate but really only on the last day does he realize this isn't going to be stopped um and that his loved ones you know he has these really strained relationships in the end certainly with his um ex-wife because she divorces him yeah i mean if that's not an operatic moment to receive your divorce papers whilst you're in the condemned cell to me, that's like something out of Tosca. Mm. It is opera. It is the essence of opera, tragic opera, to be divorced when you're hoping for a reprieve to come through. So instead of the reprieve, which would be a telegram saying it's cancelled, yep. we're committing you to life, she left him. And then in, in another operatic moment, not to cheapen it but to heighten it, uh, the, the man that Dorothy married died just before Ryan. Mm. I mean, that just seems... Uh, it's hard to believe the chain of events. Yeah, and it's understandable that even now it's really difficult for those involved to talk about it or those who still survive. Yeah. Um, part of the beauty of this book um, is just the way that you describe the people in it and the surrounds. And mm. some of the quotes I picked up just to give people um, a feel for it uh, was that you say Ronald was a man who spoke like a crow. <laughs> That's that country voice, you know. Yeah. And and it really it resonates because you can feel you, yeah. you can feel who he is as a person and yeah. see him and his um his movements and the way that he interacts with others and he's this character and you bring back all of these colloquialisms that are, you know, all but lost really. We don't That's use right. them in everyday discussion mm. in life but in this book it really does bring them back into their glory. Uh, it's like confront. It's better to say front than confront and um, Paul Keating used to love that colloquialism, front, yeah. you know, to front the media, to front. To confront doesn't sound as powerful. no. And uh, I, instead of I went into him, I into him, I into him. Everything's abbreviated for maximum impact. And uh, jail used to be called stir. Uh, it was called inside. I've been inside. There's a hundred colloquialisms for jail. There was a word called burgoo, which meant burnt porridge because <laughs> all the porridge was burnt. Yeah. So it was burgoo. And my dad, Len, used to have burgoo in the army in New Guinea. Right. During World fighting the Japanese. Because burgoo was a great word. It is a great word. You, you can see burnt porridge when you... Oh, yeah, when you say it too. And then there's goo. the officer, Ken Leonard, who I met, who gave Ronald bacon and eggs and some black pudding and some orange juice before he was measured He was measured and weighed before and three pairs of underpants put on him because when you're hanged, you lose all your blood. And uh, he, Ronald smelt the bacon and eggs and said, it'll be wasted on me, I think. Uh, let's face it, I'm for the lime pit. Mm. And that's the exact quote. So I'm lucky to have met the people who were in the in the original opera 
not the not the musical <laughs> score, but yeah. in real life opera. Yeah. And it is really all the more richer for your true insights into what oh, happened from the thanks. people. Thanks, it's nice to hear that because I, I was writing it with old blood. It was old blood that I used to write it. Mm. And then one day I rang Sandy Grant at Hardy Grant, fearing the worst that he wouldn't like it. Yeah. And uh, he said, we're running it. Yeah. And then I nearly fainted on the floor because I'd had a lot of literary rejection, mm. a lot of trouble in my life. And then when he said, we're running it, it wasn't a laudatory thing like yeah. I liked the writing. or He said, we're running it. And I just felt great. I felt vindicant. I went down to Frankston and swam all day. <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> took, a beautiful celebration. Took the day, I dived off the pier. Yeah. I stood on the sign that says no diving. <laughs> <laughs> Typical in. Ronald Ryan. Yes. Yeah, I'm <laughs> sure he would have got on. Yeah, you would have. <laughs> well, I really hope that people do pick up this book. It's called Last Words by Barry Dickens and Barry's been joining me and we've been discussing his book and, you know, if this doesn't win um, an award or many awards, I will personally complain <laughs> and protest in the streets because it really is truly some of the best Australian writing you'll ever see. So oh, thank you, Barry. You'll have me crying in a minute. Oh, well, <laughs> let's cry together because right. I really was quite moved. So, Well, that's terribly nice of you. To, you don't often hear that when you're being interviewed, so I'm grateful for those words. No, I truly mean it. So well, thanks. thank you for sharing your talent with us. Thanks very much. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3RRR. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the RRR website. Hope to see you again next time.